audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Chapter 1, 1-28. Through uh, there's some weeks we're going to be in this, these two books where our text will be way longer than what we can read for the day. Not today. So we're going to read um, all of 1 Samuel chapter 1 um, in its entirety. And if you aren't following along by reading maybe on your own, I encourage you to do that just so you can have some prep and some context coming into our sermons each week. Um, I'd love for you to be following along with us. But 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28, hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she would go up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant." And remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Then I'll, give him, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
And when she'd weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the faith of this woman that is a model for us. So, Lord, I pray as we gaze into your word now that you... Open our eyes, convict our hearts, draw us into belief in what we read and what we see. May you build us up and equip us as a body to be fully devoted to you, regardless of our circumstances. May we be fully devoted to you. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you were uh, unable to to be with us last week, uh, we kind of approached... First and Second Samuel from a 30,000-foot view, kind of giving an overview of these two books in the Bible from where they stand in the history of the Old Testament. We discovered, and we're constantly going to reiterate throughout this sermon series, the primary theme in First and Second Samuel, and it's that God is king, that Yahweh is king, the formal name of God. He is king, and his dominion and his kingdom are the entire universe. That there is not one molecule in heaven or on earth or under the earth that our God does not have rule and reign over. It is all under his jurisdiction. And we mentioned last week that 1 Samuel follows directly after Judges 21-25, kind of chronologically. That Judges ends on this very low, depressing note. You know, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That the people of Israel had abandoned their king, abandoned Yahweh, and sought to rule and reign their own lives apart from him according to their own heart's desires and their own heart's wills. The people of Israel needed a new beginning. They needed a fresh start. They needed restoration. They needed revival. And beginning with the desperate prayer of this childless woman in 1 Samuel, God begins to bring about that revival in the kingdom. Beginning in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, for the next seven chapters, we're going to be really looking at the life of Samuel. We're going to see him be born, obviously, here at the end of our chapter. We're going to see him grow and mature and lead the people of Israel back to Yahweh as he's calling them back through Samuel to himself. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see another example, and we've talked about these examples because they're all throughout the scriptures, but another example of God using the weak to usurp the strong. Hannah, this beloved instrument of God, is used to demonstrate his absolute sovereignty and power to overthrow earthly institutions with the weakest and least significant people in the world. It's an account of one woman's extraordinary faith in a God who sees the lowly, who hears the cries of the downtrodden and acts on behalf of the desperate. So let's take a look at it. 
Let's take a look at it this morning. Let's just dive into it, uh, just full-blown right here. Verses 1 and 2, they kind of set the backdrop, the context for the remaining account by introducing us to a family. Elkanah, the husband from the tribe of Ephraim, and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. More than likely, Hannah's listed here first because Hannah was probably the first wife of Elkanah. And she's the most loved wife of Elkanah, as we see later in the text. And the text tells us that Peninnah had children. Hannah had no children. You know, barrenness in this day and age would have been a point of great shame. You know, children were seen oftentimes as, as evidence of direct blessing from God. You know, the more children a woman had, the more it was perceived by Many, not all, but many, that she was more in favor with the Lord than one without children. And not only that, that, but there's a strong possibility that the reason Elkanah may have married Hannah or married Peninnah to begin with, taken a second wife, was because his first wife could not have children. So not only in the first couple verses in our story do you feel the distant from the blessing, does Hannah feel distant from the blessing of God in children? Not only are, is she somewhat of a pariah in her own culture because she has no children, but then the most intimate, important, earthly relationship she has in her husband, he has chosen a second wife because she could not provide him with an heir. I mean, think about the depths of rejection and despair in this woman's life at this point in the story. But not only are these two verses setting the scene of this just desperate situation that Hannah finds herself in, but readers of the Old Testament, if you've been reading up to this point, getting to 1 Samuel, you also have some rising anticipation building in you because we've been here before. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, probably the three most important women in the patriarchal family of the Old Testament. They, too, were explicitly said to be childless, to be barren, before God granted each of them a child that would later alter the course of history. So if we're reading, and we see here from the outset that Hannah is childless, we are anticipating something coming in later on in the story. And in light of this backdrop, backdrop in verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 8, give us some more insight into the practices of this family. Now, each year it says that Elkanah would take his family to Shiloh. This is a city that was set up, the tent of meeting was set up there in Joshua 18. You know, the temple had not been built. Jerusalem had not yet been captured. That was not yet a part of the people of Israel here in the history of the Old Testament. So when the people of Israel desired to engage in worship that revolved around the covenant, any covenant-related activity, they would head to Shiloh. And Elkanah, who's portrayed as extremely devout throughout the entirety of this chapter, he actually makes this pilgrimage to Shiloh year after year. And it's here in Shiloh that we're introduced to Eli and his two wicked sons, which we'll find out they're wicked later. Right now they're just sons, um, Hophni and Phinehas. And let me just say, Hophni and Phinehas, they're not good guys. We're going to see next week, actually, that they're really bad guys. And even worse, they're bad priests. They're not even good priests, um, which obviously, if you're a bad guy, you're probably not going to be a good priest. So they're not good guys. But Elkanah and his family, they would bring a sacrifice to Shiloh for worship. 
Most likely, this was a peace offering from Leviticus chapter 7. Each year, they'd bring this peace offering, and I think it's a peace offering because they would receive back portions of the offering to eat in a celebratory feast. So they get these portions back. Elkanah would take the food. He'd divvy it up among his wives and his children. He would give Hannah a double portion. It says because he loved her. And even in the midst of all of this going on, the celebratory meal that's taking place, the author of 1 Samuel is just still painting this picture of desperation in Hannah. I mean, the author explicitly says twice that the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. This is a supernatural barrenness, a sovereign barrenness from the Lord. The author also gives us insight into this ridicule that Hannah would feel at the hands of Peninnah year after year. I mean, the text literally says year after year they go to worship and Hannah would be ridiculed at this worship gathering, this worship feast. So Hannah would go to this feast and she would sit around this table with her husband and his other wife and all of her kids. And she would sit around this table and hear the laughter and the commotion and the chatter of these kids. And she would be reminded year after year that she had no children. That her heart would yearn and it would groan and it would hurt for she had no children of her own. So she weeps. Understatement. She weeps. She doesn't eat at this celebratory feast. She doesn't even celebrate with the rest of the family. Elkanah tries to comfort her (laughs) like uh, like a man. Hey, you have me. (laughs) Am I not worth more than 10 sons, right? It's like typical husband response, trying to fix the situation. Good intentions, totally wrong thing to say in the moment. But there's something key here happening at this point in the story that's setting us up to experience the wondrous provision of the Lord. And it's the first point of our sermon this morning, and it's that God's sovereignty knows no bounds. God's sovereignty knows no bounds. And the first way I think we see this in the text is through the title given to Yahweh, to the Lord, two times in our verses. It's the title, the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of hosts. See it there in verse 3, Elkanah and his family come to offer sacrifices to the Lord of hosts. You see it in Hannah's prayer in verse 11 that she addresses God as the Lord of hosts. Talked briefly last week about this title and that it was often used throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel. It's actually when Hannah uses it in a prayer in verse 11, it's the first time in the Old Testament to this point it's ever been used in a prayer by anyone. And the word host in the Old Testament, it's used to describe a variety of things. It can be used to describe angels, plethora of angels, stars, the starry hosts. It can be used to describe men. You know, in 1 Samuel 17, God is the commander of hosts of armies of Israel. But in using that title, the Lord of hosts, what it ultimately is conveying, it it is pointing to Yahweh's rule over all spiritual entities, and it highlights his unmatched authority. That he has all the resources in the universe at his disposal. There's truly nothing outside of his power to do. So why, of all the titles the author could have used to describe the Lord, of all the titles Hannah could have used to pray to the Lord in verse 11, why this one? And I think it's because the author knows and Hannah knows that Yahweh 
the God of angel armies, who has absolute power and resources in the palm of his hand, that the God who calls out by name every single one of the starry host by night, forgetting not any of their names, that the God who commands legions and legions of troops, that surely this God can provide a small baby. Surely he can do it. That if he has the power to create and sustain cosmic realities with simply a word, he's the Lord of hosts, then he most definitely can govern the smallest of domains, a mother's womb. That he is the Lord of hosts, but he's also the Lord of the womb. That he sows the tapestry of the universe for all the world to behold. And at the same time, he knits together the baby in the solitude of a mother's body. And the author here uses the phrase, the Lord has closed her womb two times. And I believe he said this for three reasons, kind of in light of this Lord of Hosts title. I think the first thing is what we've just been talking about. First reason, that God's sovereignty and power ranges from the host of the heavenly places all the way to the habitat of a developing baby in utero. Second, the author desires to demonstrate God's plans in suffering. That suffering, even the pains we experience in this life, that all of those things are not arbitrary, but they have a purpose. And then third, I think the author's driving home the point, as he's going to do for, throughout the remainder of this text, that God cares about the lowly, that God cares about the downtrodden and the depressed, that he cares about the weak, that he's not only concerned with the cosmic realities on a grand stage, but he concerns himself with the intricate details of the lives of his people. That he hears grand prayers on the lips of great preachers, but he also leans into prayers prayed by desperate mothers in the stillness of the night. That he knows and is near and sees and hears those who feel like no one else hears and sees and knows them. And this leads to the second point of our text. God transforms the prayerful. Transforms the prayerful. You know, Hannah's pain had turned her into a theologian. You know, when we have to grapple, when we walk through pain as believers and we, and we have to grapple with our prior knowledge of God, it sharpens us shapes us. You know, what we believed about God before entering into that pain, you know, how do we cling to that truth of who he is in the midst of our pain? You know, times on spiritual mountaintops of our lives are intended to prepare us for valleys. You know, the truths of God sung in, on the heights are intended to be clutched in the mire of the depths. You know, our theology is forged in the fires of suffering. Now, what we proclaim in the light, is it solid enough to uphold us in the weight of the darkness? You know, in verses 9 through 18, I believe we see Hannah begin to grapple with the reality of her situation and the truth she knows of who God is. And this is where, and just as a side note, you know, Elkanah, uh, he's clearly made many mistakes already in this text, but... I want to I 
be compassionate towards him, not just simply as a fallen man, myself, and a husband, but the guy has set in place spiritual rhythms of his family, right? I mean, year after year, he's taking his family to worship, to to feast, to celebrate what God has done, and he's bringing offerings with him. He's bringing gratitude with him. He's been instilling in them a knowledge of God and rhythms and practices of sacrifice and of service in his family. So even amidst his flaws, he still sought to lead his family well in the worship of the Lord. And I think there's a word there for us as fathers and husbands in this room. We are seriously flawed individuals, but we need to be practicing and putting in motion and rhythms leading our families to worship the Lord. The author in verses 9 through 18, he continues to describe this internal and external grief that Hannah is experiencing. I mean, just listen to some of these, this language here in verses 1 through 17. She wept and would not eat. She was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. She can't even voice words verbally in her grief because it's so great. She's troubled in spirit, pouring out her soul before God. She has great anxiety and vexation. She describes her plight as an affliction. She feels forgotten, pleading with the Lord to remember her. You know, in our 21st century context, I think it would be safe to say that Hannah, in some form or fashion, was dealing with clinical depression. I mean, listen to that language. She, is, she won't eat. She's distraught. She's weeping all the time. How she describes her own plight, she can't even function because of her grief. And this is her disposition and her reality, and where she flees to is the tent of meeting. She goes to pray to her Lord, to Yahweh, and she pours out her soul before the Lord. And in verses 9 through 11, she makes a vow to the Lord that if God would grant her a son, that she would give him back to the Lord. And that phrase in verse 11, and no razor shall touch his head, that's a reference to Numbers chapter 6 and the Nazarite vow, where devout men could take this vow and dedicate themselves to the Lord the entirety of their days. So Hannah makes this vow on behalf of her unconceived son. She doesn't even have a son yet, right? And Eli, the priest, first time we see him, he sees her. And because her mouth is moving and no words are coming out of her mouth, he thinks she's drunk, which implicitly speaks to the depravity of many of the worship services going on here during the days of Israel in this time. But Hannah assures him, I'm I'm not drunk, I haven't been drinking, uh, and tells him that she's a desperate woman. She's not a drunken woman. She's a desperate woman. And Eli, he gives her his blessing upon her and her petition. He doesn't even know the petition at this point. He just blesses her. And then in verse 8, here's the transformation. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And what a contrast the first 17 verses we've seen of Hannah's disposition. You know, Hannah entered into the sanctuary despondent. She left transformed. And that's what prayer does to the one praying. And we find ourselves coming to the Lord, pleading with him to show up, to work a miracle, to provide in ways that we cannot provide for ourselves. And in the midst of our pouring our, the pouring of our hearts out to him, he takes those hearts 
And he instills them with more faith and confidence in him, regardless of how these situations turn out. Tim Keller, he says, prayer is not merely a way to get things from God, but it's a way to get more of God himself. And he goes on, Keller goes on, he says, though prayer is a kind of, an art, is a kind of artillery that changes the circumstances of the world, It's as much or even more about changing our own understanding and attitude towards those circumstances. You know, in coming to God with our deep longings, he gives us more than we could ever ask for. He gives us more confidence in him and his love and his favor towards us. He gives us more of himself. But keep in mind here, Hannah was in her grief for a long time. A long time. And we talked about how this was year after year, right? This would take place. Year after year, she'd come to the feast of worship to worship Yahweh, to sacrifice to Yahweh and be reminded of her barrenness. And we don't know if it was three years, five years, ten years. But when you're deep in the midst of pain, even a day feels like forever. Forever. I don't think it's a far stretch to say that many of you are experiencing this kind of grief right now. Thinking in particularly the context of our story, many women right now in our body walking through the pains of barrenness or miscarriage or even premature death of a baby. I don't think it's a far stretch to say that many women here in our body, whether in this room or listening to this later, experience this grief, maybe not on a year-to-year basis, maybe on a week-to-week basis. As those of you longing for children as you come to worship here, or maybe you have children and, and you want more, you come in and you hear babies crying, right? Which is a blessing. It's a blessing from the Lord. It's a reminder, week after week, of the longing in your heart. The deep yearnings you have for children of your own. You know, in the midst of God blessing this church with a plethora of babies, praise the Lord. For you, it's a reminder that you don't have any. And the Lord, for some reason, has not allowed you to have babies yet. And I wish I could stand up here as your pastor and tell you that kids are coming. Wish I could confidently say that all childless mothers, women in this room turn out like Hannah. That if you just made a vow to the Lord, that if you promise to devote the Lord to the Lord, every child you ever had for the work and care of his sanctuary all your days, all his days, that then God would bless you with children, that he would do that. I I just can't say that. But what I can confidently say, what I can promise you is happening in the midst of your longing and in your grief and in your pain and in your loss is that God is transforming you. That he's taking this trial and this test that you find yourself in And he is cultivating in you a deeper faith 
and trust in his character and in his goodness. You may not realize that overnight, I mean, your sorrow may last for a night or two nights or 10,000 nights, but joy does come in the morning. It does come. You know, Hannah leaves this place of prayer a changed woman. Not simply because of Eli's words. There have been priests that have blessed things before that have not come to pass. But she leaves the place of prayer transformed because she's confident the Lord has heard her. That the prayer she made that didn't even have a vocal tone, that God heard those prayers. Which leads to our last point this morning that we see in verses 19 through 28. That God is the catalyst for new beginnings. He's the catalyst for new beginnings. Let's start with Hannah. How does she have a new beginning? Hannah leaves the tent of meeting. She eats. She's no longer sad. She's a completely different, she has a completely different disposition. Then before she leaves Shiloh, this new transformed woman worships with her family. Now she has no idea at this point in the story if God's gonna change her circumstances. Right? She could come back again next year and the next year and the next year to Shiloh childless. But for some reason, this trip to Shiloh, God chose to change her. And she gets home and she's intimate with her husband and verse 19 says that the Lord remembered her. God remembered her. He remembered the marginalized, weak nobody and her unuttered grief-stricken prayers, God remembered her. You know, when the Bible uses this terminology to describe the Lord, it's not like he forgets, right? God doesn't forget anything. But the phrase is rather to suggest the initiation of a new major activity from God in someone's life. He's about to work out his purposes for his people through Hannah and through this son she now has. And she names him Samuel. You know, the, the word, Hebrew word Shema, it's to hear, to hear. Shemuel, Samuel, the Lord hears. He has heard me. That's what Samuel's name means. Hannah's come to know the Lord as her provider. He heard her prayers. He gave her himself, first of all, transformed her heart. And then in his grace, he provided for her a son, an heir, you know, a son in that culture, uh, granted the son grows to be a man, it ensured Hannah's future because a son, after a husband died, would take care of his widowed mother, bring, him into, bring her into his home. Samuel would be responsible to care for her in her widowhood. But in the back of our minds as readers, if we're coming up to this point in the story, looming in the backdrop is her vow. Right? God has provided what she, for many years, has longed for. He's provided it for her in his grace. Would she be willing to part with this gift from Yahweh? I mean, could you do it? I mean, put yourselves in this position, moms, dads. Could you follow through with your word if that which you received was as the object of your prayers was now to be given back to the Lord? 
And on top of that, think about Hannah. As I just said, in giving her son away, the, the guarantor of provision for her in the future. I mean, her, she's literally giving away her future. Literally, in that moment, if she chooses to give him away, give him back to the Lord. I mean, could we give him back knowing that the Lord may never give us another son or daughter? This could be the only one. That the shame and reproach you've felt for years may return upon you. Because potentially you could be a barren woman once again. You know, so often, you and I, we ask and we ask and we ask from the Lord, which we should. That's what prayer is. We ask from the Lord to provide for us. That's a good thing. But it's like we come to the Lord like this, asking, 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 and then once he provides, we become like this. Right? Hannah stays like this the whole time. She never takes what God has given her and claims mine. It's mine now. As she gives him back to the Lord, she fulfills her vow, demonstrates her integrity, her word. As I said before, Hannah is quite literally entrusting her entire future to the Lord. She is placing completely her well-being once again in the hands of the Lord of hosts who is capable of providing exactly what she needs when she needs it. She takes Samuel back to Shiloh when he's weaned, probably two or three years old. Reminds Eli of who she is, shows him the fruit of her prayers. As for this child that I prayed, you never heard my prayer, Eli, but here's what I was praying for this child. She leaves him, worships the Lord, and he grows up to worship the Lord and be a leader in Israel and lead them back to the Lord. But Hannah here is not the only one with a new beginning. Now, Israel also experiences a new beginning. You know, if we place this story in the context of redemptive history, the story of, of God saving his people, we see that Israel collectively gains through Hannah's loss. A theologian named David Payne, he said this. He said, God had given him, Samuel, Hannah gave him back. Samuel's very name was a reminder of these things. We should not overlook the sacrifice made by Hannah, but her loss was to be Israel's gain. And she felt amply compensated. Hannah goes on to have more children, as we'll see later in the text. But by her losing Samuel, Israel gained God. The primary way they gain is they will return to the Lord through Samuel's ministry. A few chapters later, we'll get there in a few weeks. First Samuel 7, 4, it's through Samuel's leadership that the people of Israel put away the bells the false gods and Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. A people known for wandering, literally wandering around in the desert for 40 years, but also wandering away from the Lord, 
through Samuel, at least briefly, they're brought back to Yahweh and worship him only. Samuel's leadership paves the way for a king that will come to lead his people into future righteousness. And then two, we also experience a new beginning in this story. The sacrificial act of Hannah's, the honoring of a promise to give her son to the service of the Lord, that this son would grow to become a deliverer of God's people, a son that would call back God's people from false worship, from lives of rebellion and death, to call them back to their God in whom they would find life. All of it reminds us of another son who came, a son who was given by his father to honor promises he'd made to his people thousands of years before, vows that this God had vowed to his people a son of miraculous birth, much like Samuel, a completely righteous, holy son who would call back God's people from their wayward, death-filled ways that they may find life in him. God gave over his son, Jesus, that we may be delivered. And in our deliverance, God sends us the Holy Spirit to take our desperate prayers and mold us into devoted people. Hannah came to the Lord in desperation, thinking that what she needed most was a son to satisfy the yearnings of her heart. She left the presence of God with more than she ever expected to find, that rest and satisfaction come in the Lord of hosts, who would take care of her in her affliction. There's much to learn here from Samuel's, or from Hannah's example. But my prayer, my prayer for us, is that we would find comfort in a God who transforms us in our pain. That regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in today or may find ourselves in tomorrow, that he is using them to transform us in our suffering. And to remind us that he sees you and that he sees me. And we think we may not be, that he may not be doing much with our request, that he is doing far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I am. Um, I thank you for Hannah. Without the sacrifice of Hannah, there is no Samuel. Without Samuel, there's no Saul. Without Saul, there's no David. Without David, there's no Jesus. We in this room who are in Christ Jesus have benefited from Hannah's sacrifice. But ultimately, we've benefited from your sacrifice. That you sent your son to fulfill promises you had made. And you'll be sending your son again to fulfill future promises you have made. So Lord, may we as your people desire the giver more than the gift. 
And Lord, even in the midst of our grief and our pain, which are very much real, which very much cause anxiety and vexation in us, may our prayer all the time be even in those moments for more of you. Lord, I pray that now for us. I pray that that becomes our prayer as we study these two books of the Bible and beyond. We love you, Lord. For these things in Christ's name, amen.